Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hey everybody, it's John Engel, the host of the Alien Minute Podcast. Before we get started on our Alien 3 coverage, I just wanted to uh, point out to some of you who don't know, we have a Patreon page now. You can subscribe to It's $2 per episode for premium Alien Minute content. Uh, We're not just going to get on microphones and chat. We're actually going to do different podcast concepts that we've come up with, including the Quadfecta, where we talk about uh, filmmakers and how difficult it is to do four truly great films in a row. Uh, you've heard us do that a couple times already, maybe. So come over and check out who we're going to talk about uh, as far as uh, directors. And there's some other ideas. We might do some some movie commentaries over there. And uh, I don't know. We'll just see as we go along. But I think it's going to be really great stuff. And if you like, listen to us talk about Alien and Aliens and Alien 3 that we're going to do now. Come over there and listen to us talk about some other movies. All right. Well, thank you very much and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Alien Minute Podcast. Uh, We're the podcast that formerly carefully dissected Alien and uh, examined aliens in short controlled bursts. You know, there's been a lot of talk over the years, the last couple of years since we started doing the show, that maybe we would talk about Alien 3. So this is rumor control. We are going to talk about Alien 3 and we're going to do it right now. I am John Engel and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Mitch Bryan. Hi, it's glad to be back. It's really good to be back. Glad to be back, however I say that. Um, and yeah, this has been a long time coming, and um, it's a little uh, problematic for many reasons. One is that we're not going to do this one minute at a time, because I'd kill myself if I did that. I would kill you, and well, let's see. I would I'd kill, kill you, and then I'd kill myself. Somehow we'd kill each other yeah. in a suicide pact but, if we <laughs> ever you know, agreed to do something like that. But we're going to find a way to look at it, and we're going to yeah. probably just move through the movie more or less scene by scene uh, or sequence by sequence or act by act uh, and and let that kind of guide us through this conversation. Um, and we'll come to stopping points probably at the end of each act. Maybe we'll do act one, act 2A, act 2A, 2B, act three. We're not sure yet. We'll, we'll have to see how it goes because we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants, but we've been doing our homework, so there is yeah. that going for it. So right. hopefully you'll enjoy this exploration of that strange outlier of an alien movie um that is both alien movie and isn't it's a feathered fish falls between two stools yeah haul out your development cliches um but it's a uh, an unusual and chaotic production and a script that went through all sorts of versions and rewrites and morphing into one thing into another into a production that also had lots of morphs and rewrites and and uh and so the film that comes out at the other end of it is a very strange 
cocktail, a mix of, um, you know, filmmakers that have really strong visions, uh, Walter Hill and David Geiler, uh, Sigourney Weaver, uh, and David Fincher, who ultimately became the director, but Vincent Ward uh, and John uh, Fasano, who wrote the script that came before the Hill and Geiler script. There were multiple screenplays before that. Um, Eric Red did one. William Gibson, the cyberpunk inventor, did one. Um, uh, David Tui did one where uh, the prison idea kind of comes out of. Uh, Rennie Harlan was going to direct it for a while. Uh, so anyway, it, it became a very strange development process, and it's one of those deals where you can tell where they kind of jumped off and said, we're going to go in this direction, and then they just kind of weaved back and forth off of that direction. And they, they never really stopped and said, maybe we need to think rethink this one more time and go back to square one and see whether there's some other idea that we could do. And the reason is because the clock was ticking. Aliens had been such a huge hit that there was uh, immense pressure to get another movie out into the marketplace as quickly as possible. Uh, and then once Sigourney Weaver became involved, she too uh, had a voice in the creative process and um, was a big defender of David Fincher, who had come on as a director, uh, having done commercials and music videos. So that was his first feature, and he was 28. And he got dropped into a situation that was uh, huge. And um, that probably would have completely wasted somebody with less vision or or he would have been pushed around very differently if he was if he just came in there as a traffic cop. But he came in with some very clear ideas of what he wanted the movie to be. And um, and I will argue as we move through some sort of unclear ideas of what the movie was supposed to be, uh, because there are some interesting um, contrasts between things that he said he wanted to be exploring and you look at the text and you have to ask yourself, well, is that really what's what's being presented here? So, um, yeah, John. Yeah, um, certainly this. Yeah, this is a movie that, man, I don't even know if anyone, even people that like this movie and defend this movie usually do it with a caveat that it is a warts and all kind of caveat where they say, yes, it's messy. Yes, there are unclear ideas. Yes, there are what look to be unfinished special effects from time to time. Um, I, yeah, I don't think anybody argues that it's a perfect film by any means. But um, the reasons behind that are, are many. And the, the ideas, you know, the things that I've read or heard in interviews about pages being shoved under the door the day of. Um, just changes happening as they were shooting. Change, character arcs morphing after they'd already shot scenes that they still ended up using later. I mean, it's just, it's not going to make for uh, as cohesive a film as we've talked about in the previous two uh, chapters of of the Alien franchise. So we know that going in. Now, knowing what we do about previous iterations, different scripts, and where these ideas came from, it's hard not to wonder sometimes, uh, wow, if they would have stuck to that or... um, like you said, if they would have pressed pause and not chased the release date the way they did, maybe we could they could have cleaned this up and made it a lot better. Because I do think there's a lot of things going on in it that could have been fantastic. I think there's things in certain different cuts that are better than others. And I think there's things that were cut out when I saw it first in the theater that weren't even there at all that I think are actually really strong points in the, in the Fincher's cut. Yeah, I think that there's... Yet another cut in my imagination, because there's stuff that I think 
in both versions that I don't like that I think you could take out. And then there are things that I really appreciate in the extended version that, you know, so so in a way, I think that there's still a great fan cut to be made um, of, of Alien 3 using just the material in the two versions. Um, it requires some hard choices, and um, there still are issues of clarity that are, you know, in some ways the longer version is clearer, but clearer insofar only as you know people's names, you know? Right. I don't know that it's thematically clearer. Uh, it's some some case could be made for some of the editing in the uh, theatrical version that helps move us thematically to, to the destination that seems to be uh, down the road. So it's, I think, an interesting case study in, in storytelling, point of view, theme, you know, all, those, all those good things you think about when you're watching a movie. And of course, there's no disputing the fact that it's absolutely beautiful to look at. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, we, not to get in specifics yet, but I do think in the director's cut there is a, I don't know if I want to say a thematic spine to it, but at least a, like a major important vertebrae in the thematic spine of this movie that's that's just completely excised in the theatrical cut. Um, we'll get into that more when we get to the specific scenes or lack of scenes when the time comes. But um, yeah, I guess we're just going to have to start talking about the movie and start examining it now. And um, as we go beat for beat or scene for scene, we can talk about what works and what doesn't and, uh, and and back up these ideas that we're talking about now. So we'll be using as the initial roadmap the theatrical release, which is not to say we're not going to talk about the extended version. But um, I think it's easier to talk about ad- additions than it is subtractions. So we'll we'll be moving through the thing and then we'll hit spots where it will it would be different in the in the extended version and we'll address those and talk about that stuff. But um you know the movie announces itself in a particular way which is um the Fox fanfare which is not quite a fanfare it trails off into this entropic drone which I love. I actually remember this in the theater and it it, it was a kind of disturbing feeling like going to the movie. It's something about that note that it hits and holds on. And of course, being the star Wars fan that I'm in, I've heard the 20th century fanfare thousands of times in my life. So to disrupt it in that way, well, they weren't really doing that yet with studio. This might've been the, you know, Hey, let us know if you think it can think of one that was earlier, but this might've been the first time I remember a studio logo or intro being manipulated yeah yeah manipulated for sure i know that there were some universal productions where directors um nostalgically kind of hearkened back to um other universal logos because universal has had so many different logos but you may be right as far as the the sound isn't there one somebody's they've been messing around with it since then though right oh all the time yeah yeah I, i am thinking now about spielberg now he didn't directly manipulate the paramount logo but he always came up with some sort of a match cut right or dissolve so he kind of of course it would be him that would come up with this idea but uh but yeah this is the first time where i remembered something so familiar being disrupted now they do, yeah warner brothers all the time they mess with them all the time universal it'll be a, a like a just off the top of my head scott pilgrim versus the world is right. like a 16-bit version of it yeah that's the one i was trying to think right of. so uh lot, there's lots of them um that drone, that atonal thing that it drifts off to that is um, entropic, running down, seems to me to be the first direct thematic thing that happens. Like, this is a movie that fits that. This is a movie that, in the same way as we said that 
you know, Ridley Scott's Alien doesn't want to be liked, doesn't care if you like it or not. Uh, this movie has that attitude and goes one step further uh, to to say that this is a completely hopeless film. And, and Fincher came into it saying that. He said, like, I want this movie to be completely devoid of hope. To which I kind of think, well, where's the fun in that? You know, like, yeah. where's the... Even, even horror films, you have to have the light if you're going to have dark. And so I don't know whether just from the get-go that attitude is quite the right attitude. It's a hard one to sustain for the entire length of a movie and um i think it sounds very youthful it sounds like the kind of thing a cocky young man would say i'm gonna do it like this and i'm gonna it's gonna be just relentlessly hopeless all the way through and you're like you know what's in lion lawrence of arabia you know young lawrence is a is a is a passionate man right i can okay i can understand it from this point of view you're in the pitch meeting let's say and this isn't how this movie went but um you had your alien, which we've all always said they didn't care how, whether you liked the movie or not. Then you have your aliens, where he does really want you to like the movie a Definitely. lot. Definitely, yes. So I can understand maybe wanting to go back, or maybe undercut the aliens. Okay, it's a big, brash action movie that's going to end on a relatively happy note. I don't think you have to go all the way with that. As a matter of fact, I think you can start your movie with that. But maybe along the way, let's give the character an arc where hopelessness, she finds the light, you know, somewhere along the way. Something for us to hang on to as viewers, especially when you're hanging a giant budget on a highly anticipated film. Maybe you should have thought that perhaps some of your audience isn't going to buy into this. Totally right. And I will argue that there are points and we will point them out when we get to them where there is a question of light. Um and a connection that's injected into the narrative. And then Fincher's strategy seems to be to then immediately just take that away from you yeah. and smash it. And it's like, uh, okay, but you know, in terms of sustaining a narrative and exploring ideas, if you keep pulling something away, you can't explore the idea, right? And so there are several really pregnant ideas throughout this movie that are aborted and you don't get to spend any time with the idea and we'll be talking about those as well which i find i find to be really interesting um i i i um don't want to everyone to think that we're going to just crap all over this movie because that's not what we're going to do but we're going to definitely bring a critical eye to it yeah so if if we start with just the titles the titles are different yeah right from the get-go because they're intercutting images and they are telling us a story uh, with quick cuts. The first thing being that that the alien is aboard the Sulaco because you you see the yeah, the, well, you the get egg that right away, don't you? Yeah. And the fact that it's being shown to us, and then we're yanked out of it, and then we're given another image, and we're yanked back out of that. So the fingers come out, and then I think you see the the they come around uh, somebody's face. You're not sure, quite sure whose face that is. I think there's a, a cracking of glass. All of those things are, frankly, the cold, dead hand of the storyteller saying, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm telling this story, and you don't have any choice, and I'm not even going to give you time to think about it, and so you know, this isn't about sit back and relax. This is about I'm pinning you to your seat right now, and um, I hope you enjoy it because I'm not going to stop. Right. And stylistically, it's different than our previous two credit sequences as well because... In those, especially with Alien and a little bit 
also with aliens there's kind of a mood a tone set by the fact that the credits just unfold slowly right and you are able to sit in your seat relax or not really relax but feel the kind of nervousness of the intro and you would kind of think based on what we were just talking about that that's also what fincher would want to go for here and to be honest i was surprised when i saw the director's cut that this was still this way because i'll tell you i thought that this intercutting with the titles was a let's get to it kind of thing like a studio note uh you you get what i mean i do i i and um it appears in hill and guiler's uh, initial draft after yeah. they t- kind of took over from Vincent Ward because it's not in Vincent Ward's version. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, it, you know, it's Walter Hill is ultimately an action director, yeah. and it's kind of a, it's kind, and he's also a, a filmmaker who delights in um, torturing and twisting images. Think about the stop frames in the Streets of Fire. Uh, titles where he never get lets you have the momentum of action. He, he stops the frame and then he'll throw you know throw a credit in uh, and then start it up again. And it's like this. It's sort of sadistic as far as how it's arresting the the viewer. And it seems like Hill's kind of up to that kind of. I could see this as a Walter Hill kind of beginning. You know. Yeah. But on in addition though the the, the fact that we see. I mean, couldn't they have been a little more mysterious about what happens here, though? I mean, you could have gotten, on the same note, if you're going to uh, uh, withhold the satisfaction of an image or the momentum of action from the viewer, um, couldn't you also withhold the precise information of there being an egg, there being a face hugger, and all those things? Oh, man. Couldn't we have had some mystery here? You, you're not, nice. not going to get any argument from me on that, because as far as I'm concerned... I would much rather learn about everything that happened on that ship somehow through Ripley. Ripley. I would rather have her go explore the wreckage of the ship and put two and two together and learn all of this stuff as she learns it and be inside the story. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, this is what you're saying, but to, to put a finer point on it, she does do that. Like, we're not talking about something that doesn't happen in the movie. She does investigate this. She does get the information. We get it the second time, which is bizarre to me. Like when later on when she's investigating and she gets the information about what happened on the ship and that there was an alien on it, they actually have a music cue that sounds as if it's a great discovery. And I'm like, I already knew that. What, <laughs> right, what right. Do I, what am I, you know, we'll probably talk about that further later, but what, why, why did they show all this at the beginning? I've never quite understood this. I always, I always felt like this was a studio note thing. A bad studio note. Let's get it all out. I want to make sure that alien's on the screen in the first five minutes. Right. Yet it's in Fincher's cut too. And you're like you're saying it's in the screenplay. And some of these things are in screenplays going back to Gibson's screenplay. Like yeah. It's bizarre that nobody stopped and went, you know what? Maybe uh we have a protagonist. Uh, she has relatively little to do in a lot of the movie. Maybe we should give her more to do and actually be in her point of view more and go on this investigation. And if we're gonna have Ripley as detective this time Hey, that's a good idea, but she's kind of a pointless detective. Yeah, it's true. But yeah, yeah but look where Hill was in his career though at that point. You know, another 48 hours, you know, <laughs> he's now become this formalist at, at that point in his career where it just seemed like he wasn't interested in anything except shot 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 yeah. smash 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 smash. How can you c- pr- create this propulsive thing? Um 
And I, I find that his, in most of the time, his later films just don't do it. Even something like Geronimo, which is sort of a return to the Western, is also really choppy and really kind of fragmented and fractured. And so it kind of fits with what you'd kind of expect Walter Hill to maybe bring to the to the equation at, in 1990 when they were writing the script. Um, we do get a really beautiful model shot. Yeah, these are nice models. All this, all the effects work here at the beginning is great. So it reminds us of the of the power of of physical, you know, physical things being photographed yeah. as opposed to what's being generated in the computer. Um, although there is some other attempts to use physical things in the movie that don't work quite as well um, because of some compositing that's a little dicey, which we'll which we'll get to. So um, we have an escape pod that lands on this planet mm -hmm. uh, with um, digital boogers flying through the air which okay the shot of the of the pod whatever going into the water is beautiful except for those effects whatever scratchy they scratch the neck they're not they're digital they're actually digital it's effects terrible it's, looking. it's a first use but the shot is beautiful yeah. why, why mess with it look i gotta bring something up and this is going to be one of those obnoxious movie fan franchise fanboy things whatever why is does this planet exist as it does? Why is there a planet that has an ocean, a bountiful ocean, no doubt full of sea life, a beach that a man can stroll on, which uh, we should talk about now, I guess, because that's yeah. in the uh, director's yeah. cut. My question is, we just learned in the last <laughs> chapter, <laughs> Aliens, that they spent decades terraforming a planet for a small colony that is a uninhabitable planet they spent how many billions of dollars terraforming it to make it decades later still uninhabitable but will be almost uninhabitable basically when they have this planet that's got an ocean on it then they just drop a prison on it and that prison's not even functional anymore people should be living here. what yeah you see what i mean no i anyway, totally see it's, what you mean. it's a dumb kind of thing it's but a, it's, it's something a, i thought about it, i've never heard anybody bring up before but it's a dumb kind of thing that extends out from where Vincent Ward initially takes the story, which yeah. in, in his version, it's set on a manufactured planet mm -hmm. that can then be customized the way you want your, your planet to be customized. And in, in this particular version, it's all made of wood and it is inhabited by uh, monks, medieval, basically medieval monks. And within this wooden planet, there are wheat fields and there are cathedrals, and they live this um, Luddite existence with no technology, even though the whole thing has to be run by this incredible technology at the center of the planet because it's a space planet. <laughs> and then you can actually go out to the outside of this wooden ball where there are lakes, and, uh, and there's atmosphere. I, I don't know how that works, but go with it. It's science fiction, I guess, uh, or fantasy. And so... In the Vincent Ward script, where do you think the escape pod lands? It lands on the lake. Crashes in the lake, right. Yeah. So this is the first of many examples of where instead of, as you said, pressing pause and saying, is this what we want the story to be? It becomes this complete perversion of what it starts out as or 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 not if not a perversion a stretching and twisting and turning and shifting and then it becomes this other thing you know and this other thing uh is like this bizarre hybrid it's like yeah. an alien yeah it's just you stop and you ask if it makes sense with what we've seen before and you know i could rewrite this scene the 
Clemens is wearing a suit. Like he's wearing a space suit. He's going for a stroll, but the place isn't habitable. There's no ocean. That doesn't make sense unless the ocean's poison, but then there would have to be all this exposition for that. And he finds Ripley. And then you have this mystery of, oh, what's inside of the spacesuit? Is it alien or man? You know, you have things that are like enticing to the viewer instead of just seeing a dude strolling on the beach. Where it's like, if they got beaches here, why aren't people living here, man? Like, they obviously need colonies. The weather's but pretty shitty, though. The weather's pretty shitty. But if you can take decades to terraform a planet, you could terraform this one just enough to change the climate. Well, wasn't LB you know? LB four seven one? Is that the name of LB four twenty six? LB four twenty six has really shitty weather too, though, right? Yeah, like but that kind of can't survive outside there, you, right? You can totally survive outside. It's just not nice yet. But that's after decades of terraforming. Yeah, you know, because LB four twenty seven before or four twenty six before, remember was what uh, they can't see anything. Uh, an alien, you know, as they're walking across the, you know, so we see the change. It's dumb. See, we're spending too much time talking about it already. Well, so I, I don't know. It's kind of pointless. Um, it, to me, that's an indicator of the lack of thought <laughs> that went into how some of this stuff was just, like you said, they cobbled together th- ideas from other scripts and just threw it into the movie. Where that, I, I guess, say that Vincent Ward script is very interesting to me. And you can I read really, it online. If you haven't read it, you can find it. It's at a bunch of places, and it's totally worth your time because it's completely nuts. It's completely nuts, and I love the idea of it, but as I read, was reading the script, I was felt like it was Baron Mon, von Munchausen land or something. It wasn't quite an alien movie. It's like, this is, this is an alternate universe alien. It's cool. Ripley could go there in a comic book. But for a third movie, there's no way. It's way too much. No, I totally agree. And like you said, fantasy. It's way more fantasy than it is science fiction. Yeah. And yet, you know, we're still stuck with this notion of Ripley ultimately trapped on a planet full of men. Right. And so who don't have sex in both of these instances. We'll get there in a minute. But like, is that the movie you want to see? Is that is that the version of I mean, I personally would like to see the movie with at least Newt. And maybe Hicks, which of course everybody—that's the go-to, you know, line. And then the well, other, their co- counter argument is, you know, that's too simple and too easy, and we wouldn't want to do that. Well, and and we appreciate the nihilism of that Fincher was going for. That's the counter argument I hear a lot. It's like, well, like he was—you can't get totally enough, nihilistic. You can't so. get enough good nihilism, really. Oh, I don't know, good, good nihilism, <laughs> bad nihilism, whichever, whichever kind of nihilism. But yeah, I've always been one to say, and and this is not an objective um, statement. I don't like that they kill Newton Hicks. I don't like it. It makes me, it gives me a bad taste in my mouth right from the beginning. And I'm not saying that that's an objectively bad choice. I just don't like it. Yeah. I right, liked right. Newton. I liked the journey of aliens and I liked that the victory of aliens and I don't like that you just kill it off right at the beginning. Some people do. That's fine. Why but, not just kill him off during the first half of the movie or something? We could go on and on about that. No, but I just mean in terms of like the sheer emotional. Wouldn't you get a lot more emotional punch out of yep. letting him be alive for a little while and then whacking yeah. him one by one at a time? The studio is probably much happier doing this off-screen thing than they are actually having Newt get killed. First of all, you have you have a production problem. You got Newt is how much older, right? So you right. have to recast, and that's harsh. And Michael Bean, you know, I think he had an idea he was going to be in the movie. Well, he did because Gibson's script. He's well, is he like the lead? And, you know, so he, there was a lot of bad blood there, I think. That, you know, he talks about issues with even using his likeness in the body well, cast. Well, this is a dumb question, but I guess when you're in suspended animation, do you, you don't grow at all, right? I guess not. No, I guess you're not supposed to, at least. 
But could they come up with an? I don't know. You could because if you're in up. suspended animation for four years, do you just? I mean, look. Do you it, just age four years? And, I mean, and Ripley was eighty. What eighty five years? Right, and she didn't age a day. So oh, right. So that's at least the rules of the this right. universe. Right. So Newt would be still have to be yeah. a kid. So John, you mentioned that you've got this is the first big divergence between the two versions because in this in the studio release version you get a very quick readout of the planet and where they are and then boom these guys are opening up the a lot like ship. aliens a right? lot like alien which yeah. is you know okay that's that's all right with me of course right away we know who these that these guys are humans uh from earth like you gotta assume they're from earth and uh unlike aliens where dudes came in in, a, in suits and you weren't sure like i was saying before we could i would have almost rather had that recall yeah to aliens than this because this is just kind of like okay look hey oh gross you got a bunch There's of bald people. guys coming and then in. of course you know so in the director's cut right here we get uh charles dance's character clemens uh strolling on the beach coming across the pod and coming across ripley covered in so i guess the, there is a hint there ripley covered in black now that's either soot from the fire in the pod, or maybe that's an indication that the ocean is poisonous. Well, yeah, that's so always what go. I thought it was. Yeah, some sure. kind of, so good. Some okay, kind of tar or something. From so the, there's a counter argument to what I'm saying about the having an ocean being. So for those of people life. who just lost their minds, oh, they're just 10 so minutes ago. Like, it's oh, like, what on, is he talking man. about? <laughs> okay, all right. So there you go. Well, I love. You're uh, smarter than us visually, and I think narratively, uh, and and as far as character development that we'll get as the movie goes along at least in the first half of the movie i i much prefer that being in the movie i yeah. like the it's beautiful to look at you it opens the world up a little bit more and we get a bonding moment right away despite ripley being unconscious between these two characters so this then feels rushed this it does seem rushed. like production value doesn't it it does like very much like so. what why do you cut out the production value in the first 10 minutes of the movie that know. give you a sense of scale that you really are not going to get for the entire rest of the film until the ship shows up at the very end so and that's really an odd choice isn't it and let's just say right up up front maybe most positive thing i have to say about this movie the production value is amazing i love the sets i love the set design i like all of that and you we know from the from the uh, supplemental material that they put those things you see in the director's cut that he's walking through those structures yeah those they put a lot into building that stuff and why would you want to just cut it out i think there were i think there's some panic mode involved like oh my god we got to chop this well, thing yeah, up oh we got to get right to it it was running long yeah yeah so it so again in the director's cut uh clemens finds ripley and r carries her back to the prison um where he's met by a, a guy or two i can't remember uh, and says, you know, there's a pod down, go investigate. I'm going to take care of her. Where here we get uh, in the theatrical cut, we get just kind of the, the aftermath of the crash, them kind of investigating, finding bodies. And then we get an introduction. Is this a reshoot? You got to get the dog in No, there it has to be a reshoot because right. he says one of them is still alive. So that's Ripley in the right. pod. So they, they must have been hedging their bets. All dog or, things or are they, reshoots, or maybe, right? Well, they maybe they did both, didn't they? Didn't weren't they doing it both ways? I'm not. To be honest, I don't know. I don't remember hearing whether they said the dog stuff was also shot. I thought they were pretty committed to the ox, right? Um, and the dog, because later, well, we'll get there pretty soon when we when we meet the dog again. Yeah, it feels like a reshoot. It's not a very good scene. It's not very well performed. It seems like it was directed by somebody else, and uh, I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if that line, because he does say that line on camera. There's there's one alive in here. You can see his mouth move. So maybe they did 
Because they did say that in one of the supplements that they were in certain places hedging their bets and doing different lines, and they weren't sure how it was going to end, and so they were adding little things here and there. And Well, they could so, have gotten that, that shot of him saying that. Yeah, no, that's true. true. Yeah. It's, 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 that's a, a, if any work on the movie, give us a call. Let us know when, that, when they made that shot. And um, so we get these – I love these video game – uh, <laughs> graphics of the graphics characters. Graphics of the characters laid over images. I'm sorry if that's just reeks of. Uh, I'm trying to be positive here, guys. But this just reeks of we got to get this going. Yeah. <laughs> it just, and you know what? That's ridiculous. Showing Newt with her mouth open. Okay. Does he say. So he's lying later when he says that she drowned uh, and wasn't conscious because she clearly was conscious when she died. Yeah. Now in the director's cut, you don't. You, the line could be true. Yeah. So it's actually less sadistic in the in the director's cut. It's very bizarre to me that they have this shot of Newt terror on her face. It's pretty sadistic. Do you think that is that Carrie Hen? Do you think I they don't think she that? was involved with? Yeah, I think that's somebody else. A dummy of her, maybe. I you know I don't remember. I mean, I think they did make a dummy of her. Yeah, yeah but um, I can't say for sure if in that shot. And then poor Hicks, boy, he... <laughs> There's nothing but meat it's, that reveals Hicks. Uh, that way they don't have to pay Michael Bean. But they did anyway because they had to use his face, so I guess they had to pay him something. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's all to get us eventually to Ripley. Uh, and Bishop gets checked off, but we don't know exactly. We just see him in a plastic bag, and we're mm-hmm. going to get some more Bishop a little bit later. Yeah. So finally, you get through those titles, and... Um, and you're you're well into what's essentially the first sequence of the movie, and what becomes the end of this sequence is we see Ripley being treated. Um, we get this shot of the ship being brought in, which is again, a l- I don't know that shot. I don't love this the 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 shot of the crane hauling the mm-hmm. ship in because you can see these very distinct lines around the outside of the ship, right? Right. Well, and yeah. there's more space boogers, and, and you do get. A little bit more of the world again. So again, they're like, okay, well, here's some of that production value. Right. At least you get the. It's shitty, but here's some shitty, of it. Shitty, but here it is. Uh, and, and then, then we if, get the dog. And then we get the dog that's going to press this story uh, and kind of end the sequence. And of course, we see the face hugger at the end of the sequence, and that kind of puts a button on this big beginning of the film. And then you sort of move after a shot of the planet uh, into the into really the next sequence of the movie, and again a difference. Because in the extended cut, we have a lot more dialogue between the men. In the theatrical, it goes straight to the line, this is rumor control, which I I personally like from an editing point of view. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's a strong beginning to a new sequence. Um, But what you lose for it is you you just get all the guys' names prior to it. You know what I mean? So there's introductions (laughs) that go on that get cut out, which is good, I think, in terms of the dramatic punch of it. But expositionally i don't know who the fuck these guys are yeah, and i is... don't for the entire film like i had to do so much work to figure out what everybody's names were all right all right let's get it going keep it together come on right right here we go mr dylan give us strength O oh lord to endure we recognize that we are poor sinners in the hands of an angry God. Let the circle be unbroken until the day. Amen. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. 
This is rumor control. Here are the facts. See how they did a good job with Danny Brown's character, giving him a nickname that is an issue, and even gets a moment where they explain it. Well, everybody should have gotten something like that. They yes. should have made sure, and everybody should have gotten a hat or a tattoo or something. Everybody. It's real simple. So, I actually don't understand how they could have thought of that. Yeah. So the, this a lot con- of guys do, but so the, not the, everybody. This contemptuous attitude that sometimes you'll get of like, oh, you're so stupid, you just you can't tell these people apart because they're all bald and have funny accents. My response to that is, actually, no, that's not the reason I can't tell them apart. The reason I can't tell them apart is they don't have any fucking character differentiation. Right. I have seen my share of prison movies, mm-hmm. you know? In prison movies, people have different functions within the prison. Like, where's the cook, for crying out loud? You yep. know, like, just just jobs for these characters? And you would think that Walter Hill, who did, has done an ensemble movie or two, like The Warriors and Southern Comfort and The Long Riders, and knows his way around an, a, an ensemble cast, you would think they would have written these characters with some character. I guarantee Walter Hill has more than once seen The Great Escape. Come on. <laughs> right, it's exactly. It's easy. Yeah. You're right. Cool Hand Luke. See, I've to seen me, Cool Hand Luke. You're right about the jobs. So who's James Garner? He's the scrounger in The Great Escape, right? Of course we know who James Garner is anyway. There's a little bit of a difference I understand yes, because all those people are distinctive in the in who they are as actors even. But yeah, you're right. Give these guys jobs. Yeah, where is the cook? Why can't the... There's mess hall scenes. Why can't there be the guy and he's wearing something that indicates he's the <laughs> he's cook like and he gives them the damn he's like cornbread a planet or whatever. He's got his little cook hat on. <laughs> Just like any... It can be subtle or a tattoo. Like yes. I said, tattoos. Tattoos? It, their choice on tattoos other than the guy with the cross on his head. Yep. And then uh, Holt McElhaney, McElhaney has the t- uh, tattoo tear. Otherwise, the tattoo is actually a uniform thing where they all have the same one. Instead, so make a different choice there. Give us some distinction, but give them character. That's most important. Let these actors have something that you want too. Um, what I'll say about the difference here is, I, I, I agree with you that editorially, it's nice to have just like, boom right here. This is rumor control because we're going to return but to I that. I miss Dylan, yeah, opening the scene and uh, um, a much more important character uh, introduction there, and that is a very distinct character. I mean, if you don't know who Charles Dutton is, say when you're watching this movie, when he pipes in at first, you're like, oh, he's just one of the guys saying the same thing all the other guys are saying. If he opens the thing with a damn prayer, <laughs> you know he's the chaplain. He's the, you know, I like right. that. Yes, and I think because he's because he's a more important character than Andrew's here, I still want to cut to him. Now, I think that the prayer opening scenes with a prayer from Dylan gets very redundant as the movie goes along in the director's cut. Yes. They could have cut it later. I think here's where you keep it for sure. So here's here's where I think there's a, a um, troublesome aspect with the movie. So they started out as monks, right? And you had Vincent Ward's, you know, monk fetish going on. And so he had these, and they had they had a little bit more distinct characterization if you read the script. Why do you make a movie about religious people that seems to have absolutely nothing to do with religion? I mean, this really distresses me because every time you get a prayer, the prayers are completely generic. There's no sense to me that there is any real faith here. And if it's Fincher doing, I wanted to do a story of a of a world where there is no God and uh, but there are people of faith, 
it's like, great, good, do that. But you have to let me understand faith. You don't make a movie about a religious order and not have it be in some way a conversation with religion. Well, here's what I, I've thought about this. If I'm writing this movie, say you gave me this, hey, take a pass at the script. This isn't a religious order. This is just grasping at straws. They have nothing. They have nothing else. And maybe some of the guys know that, and maybe some of them don't. Maybe some of them ignore that. There's no actual faith. So let's see how that works. On a mask. I need to see how that works. Then I need to no, see that's who's, what I'm saying. who's benefiting from it, who isn't benefiting from it, who's getting real so, solace from it, who's not. So some of them are getting solace from it only because they have no other choice. You have then you have the character who we'll talk much more about later of Gallic, who is a true believer. And there's where that nice thematic line would have been I, with him I, in the I movie, totally right? agree with that, yes. And then you get a scene later, this is my rewrite, where Dylan confesses to Ripley that it's bullshit. It's all they've got. He he cares about the guys. He's not a, he's not a con man, per se. He's just orchestrated this and kept it going because he knows that's the only way that they can keep going here to me that's all got there's richness to that and truth to it and there's like truth to it about religion maybe right see what i mean no, but none I, of that I, is so, you're right none of that is touched on i rest my case but right. when you get to gallic in the director's cut it's something starting does happen to be there's, there's an idea there yes and, and the big moment of it is in the damn theatrical cut but it means nothing yeah because it's oh anyway we'll get to that we'll get later. there right but you're right i i agree i think that they could have done a lot more a little more work it's actually not a lot more work. It's a couple of scenes and moments to show us what this religious uh, uh, order means to these guys in relation to being in prison. Where right now it's just like, oh, it's a prison and it's a monastery. It's a prison and it doesn't really connect. Right. Yeah. And that and that it's the old thing about, um, you know, two elements of suspense doesn't make something twice as suspenseful. It makes it half as suspenseful. Right. right? And so by not choosing, let's do a prison planet or let's do... A monastic order let's not do both i think you would have had a better movie I, I i mean you could have the one religious guy i mean gallic could have still been the religious fanatic of the group he's like what is it telly savalas in the, in the dirty dozen who's like the the kinked yeah. out religious guy who's right. a child molester or whatever i mean you could you know you could do that oh yeah and see, dirty dozen how about that robert aldrich you think walter hill walter hill was friends with 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 robert aldrich see i think that there's a good movie with the prison and the religion there's just no connective tissue between the two th- ideas. What I just said, I think, could have been one way to provide right. that connective t- tissue. If you're going to make a movie where there's, if you're going to make a movie where religion is prevalent, that's going to be a part of your theme. You can't escape that. That can't just be part of the background. So, what are you saying about religion? In this case, religion is just for those who don't have any other choice. <laughs> you know, yeah. And that goes along with the nihilistic yeah, cool. uh, theme of the, the the tone of the movie, right? So I think that could have happened. They just didn't do it. Whether they thought to do it, whether they just missed a few moments, whether they cut things out that we don't even know about, I don't know. To me, it was there, and I think they could have made a good movie with both. So I think with those cuts, um, you're off on unsound footing in terms of just trying to figure out who is who you know luckily we've got andrews as the as the narrator guy who we love him from american werewolf in london as some of you know a 337 model eev crash landed here at 0600 on the morning watch 
There was one survivor, two dead, and a droid that was hopelessly smashed beyond repair. The survivor is a woman. I just want to say that I've taken a vow of celibacy that also includes women. We've all taken the vow! I'd like to say that I, for one, do not appreciate company policy allowing her to freely intermingle with inmates and the rest of the staff. What brother means to say is we view the presence of any outsider, especially a woman, as a violation of the harmony, a potential break in the spiritual unity. We are well aware of your feelings in this matter. You will be pleased to know that I have requested a rescue team. Hopefully, they will be here inside of a week and evacuate her ASAP. What's her medical status? She doesn't seem too badly damaged. She's unconscious. Can't give you a more specific diagnosis at the moment. Will she live? I would think so. Look, it's in everybody's interest. The woman doesn't come out of the infirmary until the rescue team arrives. And certainly not without an escort, right? Sir. Gentlemen, we should all stick to our set routine and not get unduly agitated. The rest, all right. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, one of the other things that gets established almost instantly in this first scene is this aesthetic choice that Fincher makes, which is to shoot up everybody's nose. And the up-the-nose shots becomes the one of the primary aesthetic directorial framing choices um, I don't know. I get tired of it after a while. But that's just me. Well, and we know from from the documentary making of documentary that Alex Thompson was, was pretty proud of that. <laughs> Apparently, he likes seeing um, the ceilings. I mean, John Ford liked you seeing ceilings too. I mean, I don't have well, a problem with shooting uh, below eye level. I just I don't know about shooting well, up everybody's noses. How so much many you get times, for it. yeah. I mean, there's just you got to ask yourself: What are you saying narratively? What are you saying about the character when you frame a shot that way? You got to think about that. You don't just shoot up for no reason, and it might have to do with the fact that these are such fantastic sets, right? And they go, "Look, we got ceilings here. Let's show the ceilings." I get that to a certain degree, but you got to you got to rein it in a little. We bit. We also get the barcode on the back of somebody's neck, mm-hmm. uh, which is a holdover from the William Gibson script. I think that's one of the ideas that he brought oh, to is the it? mix. Yeah, I don't know why I thought yeah. they said Fincher was the guy who brought that idea. No, I think that's I'm almost. Correct me if I I'm wrong. On the Weaver Facebook. said that. I the... think it's in the William Gibson script. Okay. I'll go back and look, but I seem to remember having having read it there. But Sigourney maybe. Weaver may never have even read the William Gibson script, so it's possible. Well, she's not in it, right? Yeah. Um, so it's here we try to differentiate who these characters are, and it and at least you know we know one's called Morse, uh, but it's it's tricky figuring out who knows what. And so then when when we finally get Charles Dutton in the theatrical, you're right, it's much weaker. I mean, he steps it's, in and, and interprets what the brother means to say in the presence of an outsider and all that business, but it's, it's probably a, not as good. It's a stronger intro shot than the other guys get. Yeah. So you do, he slides into frame and, and you get the idea, okay, this guy's more important. And we know him, so we know the actor's more important. But I think it's stronger when he's actually introducing the scene. And then you see um, the guy with the cheap trick hat. Cheap trick hat. Aaron, right? Aaron, a.k.a. 85. 85. A.k.a. Danny from With Nail and I. Thank God for a hat. Yeah. That's all I have to say. We just have to, I just have to run this down. Danny Brown, Danny from With Nail and I, famous for the, 
Oh, I can't remember. Is it the Camberwell carrot or whatever that giant joint is that they smoke in? <laughs> Our English listeners are like, that's not what it's fucking called. Um, because they know it's about it's an actual place in England. Uh, also, Rick Ole or Olier from... <laughs> The Phantom Menace, which is all of our listeners who also listen to the Star Wars Minute know what I'm talking about. We don't have to get into it. He's just a running joke um, of a and, character. But and, and he Venture, Venture like wanted him. Richard E. Grant to play um Clemens. To play Clemens. My God, it's like it would have been Withnail and I in space. Almost all just the Withnail and I cast. We just need Uncle yeah. Monty. We should get uh, uh, replace the the uh, Andrews with Uncle Monty. And Andrews with Richard with Griffiths. Richard and- Griffiths. That would have been a little strange. <laughs> Not quite an edge as much of an edge to Richard Griffiths as there is here. But that, the guy that plays Andrews is um, he's great. He's great. And Got Charles Dance voice. is great. And I yeah, watching Charles Dance is so good. As much okay, I'm Richard E. Grant fan all the way. But watching the test footage, yeah, maybe not. Maybe it would have been a completely different kind of relationship, and they certainly wouldn't have slept together. I don't think. Right. Well, <laughs> we'll get to. They'll get there in a yeah. minute too. But yeah, Charles Dance brings a, a wonderful quality to it, and of course, in the theatrical version, this is his introduction, really. But in the director's cut, we will have already we would have already met him walking out on the right. beach. So the amount of information we have to process in this first scene would be less because we've you know actually met at least one of the characters and okay. they're introduced in a more elegant way in the in the longer version yeah i don't know if it's more exciting i mean i i, I tend to like the shorter version because it seems to get to the point faster you know? i don't know i think it yeah i mean there's a lot to be said for how these characters are treated right away and so we get but, this we lay down this first rule the woman cannot come out of the infirmary right yeah, lay that, that lay rule, that, that, lay that rule down. Rule. So she's gonna. So we know that Ripley's gonna be in the infirmary uh, for almost the entire movie, right? Yeah, we know that absolutely. Yeah. It's been established here strongly in no uncertain terms. She cannot be out. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, we know. I guess that's how movies work, right? When you say X is gonna happen, you know that Y is gonna happen instead. Well, when Y happens in that scenario, usually there's some kind of conflict involved in it. <laughs> There's usually something has to be done to make why happen, not just why happened. Well, at least when why happens and we'll get there, it's arguably the best line in the movie. Okay. But, uh, so we come back to the infirmary and we start the relationship between Clemens and Ripley, which appears to be the primary. It's going to emerge as the primary relationship in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and I'm cool with that. Yeah. These two seem to have real chemistry together. I love their scenes together. I mean, I have some problems with exactly what happens in some of the scenes together, but I do like what what goes on between the two of them. Sure, yeah. No, I, uh, no very low-tech needle, by the way. Yeah, no complaints about Charles Dance at all. I, I think he's fantastic. I sort of love this idea that they use those to give shots with, but they still have uh, scanners that can look inside of you and spot the... But when they do an autopsy, I mean, it's just the, the technology well, is a little dodgy You can improve it. Not all technology has to be improved. Can be improved. There's really nothing you can improve. You can improve a hyperdermic. I guess with a little gun. Shh. Like, like the, in the Star total Trek. Re- total recall guns. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They had those. We have those already. And then, yeah, that's true. And Star Trek has those hypos that are. But, but they're. Okay. So that, that brings up another thing, though, really quickly about the production design. We are in an archaic place here, considering <laughs> the time of human history we're in. Um, it's kind of hard to explain why there's so much like mid to early, even early 20th century uh, design well, to this you, prison planet on another planet. Like, was it answer. built in the 20s? You do know the answer. I, I'm guessing that they just cobbled it together from 
things that they found and no, sent it so to this planet. But you, what do you mean? No, no. So if you, I, if I could be wrong, but I, this is how I understood it. So if you look behind, uh, for example, in the infirmary, if you look at the arches mm-hmm. on the ceiling, there are medieval arches. And that's because Norman Reynolds had started building sets true, for yeah. Vincent Ward's medieval movie. That's and right. so then it turns into something else. And so the the, the panels are wood in the yeah. infirmary. So that's a real clear indication of what um, it probably would have looked like in the Vincent Ward film. It would have all been painted brown. And and it would have you know looked like it was in the 1400s or 1300s. Yeah. So that's one of the weird things about the design. And then there are other places like the abattoir which they clearly just came in and they smacked a bunch of tile on that and sort of did this kind of Art Nouveau thing. And there's also some stained glass because that was another big motif in Vincent Ward's script because it's medieval. And you will see some stained glass throughout here. So it's an interesting, can you imagine the production designer? It's like halfway through design concept, building all this shit. And they're like, okay, now you have to turn it into something futuristic. But you can't redo anything. You have to just retrofit it. So the in-world explanation would have to be architectural salvage, though. Like, if you really had to explain why this place looks like this in the world. In the world. Say, they just salvaged a bunch of buildings from all over the world, threw them in a spaceship, and then rebuilt it all there piecemeal. Well, you know, that's the old saying, we can terraform a planet, but we can't uh, architecturally fit it out in any kind of consistent way. (laughs) I guess that is the old saying. It's the old saying. many times. Yep, yep. So we start to get the exposition. Clemens is going to tell Ripley everything that we almost already know, right? How'd I get here? You crash-landed in an EEV, evidently separated from your mothership before you hit our atmosphere. You have any idea how long you were in hypersleep? Just coming out the way you did can be quite a jolt to your system. Yeah, I'll be sick for a couple of weeks. Indeed. (sighs) Where are the others? They didn't make it. What? They didn't survive. I have to get to the ship. I get to the ship. So that's kind of weird. And we're not in her head. And we're sort of sitting back and watching this exposition come out. We're pitying Ripley right now. I'm not sure if that's a good note to start Ripley, conscious Ripley on in a movie, right? We feel sorry for her because she's getting this... Terrible Bad news. That we oh, so know. we're back in that kind of like that alien scene, right? Where that got cut out about her daughter had died or whatever. Yep. That kind of, we're there, kind of. So we didn't know she had a daughter. That's the difference, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's not a great note to start Ripley with, I don't think. But um, she shows some strength when she gets out of bed naked and says, "You know, um, I guess I should put some clothes on uh, if I don't want to walk around like this." And and Dan says. Uh, Clemens says these men have never seen a woman in uh, in ages, and neither have I. Do that. I do want to point out one thing really quick: an inconsistency in dialogue. It could have been a real easy cut, but I think they thought it was kind of an edgy line. Earlier, one of the prisoners says that he took a vow of celibacy that includes women, suggesting that they're in a prison and they're all men, and they probably would all be screwing each other. Right. Right. Yet that disappears. Apparently, the woman. This is a strictly heterosexual prison, where the fact that a woman's there disrupts everything. Where if they took the vow of celibacy and they're not screwing each other, then what's the big deal? <laughs> like, oh, you yeah. see what I mean? Yes, it just kind of just... doesn't make sense. Like, just cut that line. Sure, these guys are all straight. We can take that as red. But it, that guy saying that makes me go, well, hell, they just spent all this time. They're not boning each other. Why is she such a disruption now? Right. Anyway, it's it's a real heteronormative like. 
thought process where they threw an edgy line in there, but with a homosexual tint to it. Right. That's what it is. And it's and it's not it's not edgy. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. So yeah, the, but they leave, right? That, so that's I think the interesting thing is that um, is that they they head out uh, to look at the ship, even though she's been told not to leave the. He just doesn't give a shit. I mean, okay, I'm gonna bring this up multiple times coming forward. There could be a power structure, power struggle in this prison with different characters that could have been illustrated much better, that would have made everything more interesting. But they're, it's all kind of murky and a little soft around the edges. He could be in direct dispute with Andrews, as Dylan would be, and we'd have this like triad of conflicting characters within this prison structure, right? Many times where I thought a power play could have happened in this that's not there, that would have made everything dramatically more interesting, and that Ripley would be in the middle of it all, and yet it's really just kind of soft. It's like, okay, well, we're gonna, he said not to leave the infirmary, but now we're leaving, and then when he shows up, he's going to be like, I said no, he's like, oh, well, this is what we did. Right. And it's all just kind of like, let's see the power plays. Come on, let's do this. There's not much else going on right now anyway. So if you set that up, then later in the movie when you need more of that kind of thing to create conflict, you got it, but it's not there. Yeah, so I definitely would have preferred the version of this where Ripley wakes up. Maybe they hadn't found the ship yet. They bring the ship in, at least where she gets to go and look inside the ship and see and discover her dead cohorts, right? Where she discovers something herself. Discovering something herself would be super important, I would think. But the way this is put together, I don't know how you cut that in. I don't. I'm not. No, exactly, no, no, no. I'm saying. No, no. I'm saying if you were yeah. just, you know, ground zero. Re, yeah, know. ground zero. There's two things I want to touch on. One is that we're to assume that uh, there was another ha- face hugger. There's a, there. We know it. We saw it with the dog. If there was a face hugger in this wrecked ship, the dog found it. Right. Yes. Right. So there was. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. there was at least one face hugger running around inside the ship. Yes. But of and, course, it turns out there was two. There must have been two, right? Because they die when they fall. Well, once they plant the egg, unless it's a different kind of face hugger, which they did create for this movie. They created this queen face hugger that they never used. the The production guys, the effects guys, are were annoyed by seen, that. I remember seeing it's that. the one you see in the director's cut from a distance that the dude holds up as they're cutting away from the ox. Oh, oh! You're saying it might have just laid an egg in her mouth and not, yep. and not. So they're saying like it's the it's the queen embryo face hugger, and it's the one that spreads the queen DNA around or whatever. Okay. So maybe that one can do it in multiple. You know, just anything to stretch the rules of the world a little bit, so it makes sense. Like it already makes very little sense, right? And people are probably glad that we didn't mention this in the first place, but I guess I gotta bring it up now. It already doesn't make any sense that the eggs in the damn ship anyway. Like nobody, I've, I, it's, right, I think it's one of the all time. Uh, conundrums. Nobody can figure out exactly how that how egg, that got, egg in there. got there. Yeah. So now we're supposed to believe there were two, but we only saw the one. So I tend to believe that that's you know my <laughs> imagination is going to say I think I'd rather there just be the one face hugger and it planted eggs in both of them. Right. <sighs> I guess. I mean, I would just, just then why didn't they show it shitting them out during the <laughs> during the titles like. You know, boop. I mean, I, I, I don't know because they can't give it away. I guess, right? Because we're guess. still holding the secret. Okay, John, here we go. I gotta, I gotta ask you about something. I gotta ask <laughs> okay. you about something super important. Mm-hmm. Did you know they had droids in the Alien universe? I don't believe I ever remember hearing the word droid. And now, this bothers me because both of us <laughs> very extensively covered 
you one movie and part of a second and me both of the previous movies. And I'm scared that I missed something and everybody's going to be like, how could you not remember? I don't remember hearing the word droid. Where no. did the word droid Ash come is from? a goddamn robot. Uh, and he's a robot. Synthetic. Synthetic. I prefer synthetic. I prefer uh, artificial human. Artificial human. But synthetic we also have... was the slang like term they were using. So like, you got droid? synthetics, you got artificial humans, you got robots, and you we, we probably would give you Android if you must first before you android? drop it to droid but they don't say android no they say droid and it's droid. just like really That's star wars it's fucking star wars it's star wars you don't say droid i just don't think i honestly i mean didn't he even try or did he lucas get the copyright i think he did i think he has a copyright on the word doesn't he i don't know i, I, can, I might be completely talking out of my ass there there but were drones in silent running and that was like so close to droid and they kind of looked like they kind of looked there's one right. in Star Wars that looks just like the Silent Running. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were based on yeah. Silent Running was his inspiration for a lot of the droids in Star Wars. But where did it, why? <laughs> droid, I don't get it. And she says it it's, so offhandedly, and she says it multiple times. All of them say it every time the subject comes up, and it's like, say synthetic. I'm just going to say my two least favorite words in this movie are droid and crud. Crud, yeah, the crud doesn't. We'll, we'll get there, too, but. Crud, yeah, so droid, so they got droids. Okay. Bishop is a droid. But you know, I'll give I'll give uh, the makeup people credit. I like her messed up left eye. I think that's pretty creepy in the bruise. So she looks like she's been through uh, a, a a tough time. Uh, and then we get this news that um, that Newt has uh, has drowned in her cry. Okay. To, it didn't look like she drowned, but that's what. I mean, this has got to be a lie. In this cut, it's a lie. We saw her. Well, it's certainly a lie that she wasn't conscious. And he's saying that to console to her. console her. Yes. So fine, but she also just doesn't look like she drowned, <laughs> or like that's not—I don't know. So it goes from that quickly to a big plot point. Boom! Ripley sees an acid burn on the cryo tube. You know, kind of a convenient thing, but somehow she's got her suspicion has to be peaked. So in the theatrical version, they insert the dog line, the plot, the dog plot line here before we get to the morgue. Right, and yep. we get to see some bugs, and and uh, and he and the dog is um, sick, and so he goes in to see the sick dog, and this is what I want to know whether that's a this is all a reshoot this or whether they shot this in England. I don't know. I don't know. I thought they I, yeah. I so they brought this guy over, and shot it at Fox when they went back to shoot reshoot stuff in in yeah, L.A. I don't know. Yeah. It feels so much like a reshoot. Yeah, like the his performance is weird and. And of course, we should point out that this, so this is the first time we see the lice or whatever, where before we saw it when he came in with Ripley. Right. So we got that. But boy, is the lice thing, other than making them shave their heads, is it important at all? I mean, it just isn't, is it? Not really. It's just no. the thing that forces them all to be bald. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which was um, an offhanded remark that so this, Fincher made at a production meeting or something. So the guy with the dog, um, have we met him already? Was he in the big room? I th- well, I think he was. He was in the. No, we met him in the in the pod when. Oh, he was one of the pod guys. Had the dog, and right. they're like, "Get your oh, get your dog, out of, there. dog right. out of here!" Right. Uh, so we go then um, to this morgue scene. So in the theatric or in the extended version, they go straight from. Her saying, I got to go to the morgue, to them going to the morgue, right? Yes. Yeah. So right. there's no cut. that They broke that up a little bit, which I I think I like the director's cut there, too. Uh, I need to see her. Go see her. Why, why stop and talk to this dog? Especially because the dog, uh, 
the the way it's intercut is pretty much exactly the same when we get to the end of the first act. Right. Right. Why Why bother? Why do yeah. it differently? I'm well, not sure. In why. fact, what it does is it 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 extends the sequence. This is a really long sequence in it the is. theatrical cut. You know, it doesn't it, that dog thing doesn't have enough of a climax for us to kind of feel like it's turned the, the movie in a new direction. And so really we're kind of on the same line of, of, of logic and action. And you know, generally sequences in movies last, you know, 10 to 12 minutes. Um, but this one is super long. There are a couple of really long sequences in the theatrical version, which makes it play weirdly longer than it really yeah. is. Um, and that's, that's, there's a case to be made that the rhythm of the longer version is a maybe better rhythm Mm-hmm. But the pace isn't better, if that makes any sense. I mean, the long mm-hmm. version feels really long to me. Uh, oh, well, it is long. Yeah, it's. I mean, Mitch, I could argue that the, the it's longer because it's literally longer, and it's not something you're enjoying very much. I well, mean, right. I don't want to be right. Like I said, we're trying to be positive here, but if a movie is really long and you don't like it, it's going to always feel like the pacing's bad and everything. You know, so the quicker the better. That's probably why you like this version better. It's simply that a could better be. taste. It's just quicker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, I honestly think that that the director's cut works better. But um, there are a couple of places. There's another place in the director's cut where a sequence is kind of messed with by a cut, by a weird insertion of a scene or breaking up of two different scenes that are connected. Uh huh. We'll get to that when we get to the second act. So, do what do you think about this whole cholera thing? Okay, I have a real problem with the cholera thing. <laughs> so mainly so because just, uh, to catch you up, basically Ripley, uh, not wanting to talk about the alien to Clemens, suggests that there is maybe a contagion which is going to justify the autopsy, and that there possibly uh, she could be she could have cholera. Okay, so here I'll I'll go down a list of problems. First off, the big one: what does Ripley have to lose by telling them about the alien? Correct. Two, if cholera has not been around for 200 years, how the hell would it come to her mind immediately? That's a nitpicky thing, but come on. You just, she says cholera. He says that hasn't been around for 200 years. Then why would she even have it on her mind? I would, I would rather go Star Trek and her say, uh, it's the Ryderian uh, flu or something. You know, right. anything would have right. been fine. <laughs> and three, if this cholera situation is going to come to light and be used as, as a legitimate excuse for autopsies, and or cremations, then Ripley is just as much of a problem as Newt's body is, and she would have to go to quarantine. Right. And in this case, they would make sure she stayed in the infirmary. So this whole gambit with the... it's I understand that between her and Clemens, he knows it's bullshit. He knows there's something else going on, but he also respects the fact that she doesn't want to say what that is, and that's what's good about the relationship. That's what works. He respects her. He doesn't need to know... Eventually, he'll get it out of her, uh, he hopes. But when it comes to Andrews, you tell Andrews that we have a cholera problem in a prison, he's going to put her in quarantine, and the movie's over. Right. right? Or or that becomes another driving part of the plot. Now, there's an alien out there, but Ripley's in quarantine and actually is stuck in the infirmary, which might have been better. Um. Anyway, so the cholera cholera is a weird thing to put do. the cholera aside, and you still have a reason for Andrews and Clemens to have a fight, right? I want to do an autopsy because I'm the doctor, and I want to make sure that I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Yeah, sure. 
Sure, it could just be between them. They don't have to say that she. He doesn't have to tell Andrews about the cholera. Problem solved. Apparently, in the early cuts of this, um, the autopsy was super graphic. You really watched him, you know, cut up a little girl. And once again, we're back to David Fitcher at 28 saying, I'm going to make the most hopeless, re- relentless movie I possibly can. And what better way than to cut up a little girl? Do we know what David Fincher <laughs> thought of aliens? Maybe David Fincher hated aliens. Maybe David Fincher hated Newt and all of that stuff. Maybe he was, maybe he loved Alien and thought Aliens was a bastardization of well, his, that of his great movie. That I could basically got to wonder if he wants to chop up a little kid if he just didn't, if he didn't just hate that character, which some people do. I mean, Newt is not totally universally beloved by any means. Right. So. No, that's, that's interesting. Um, I also kind of am annoyed by the fact that he says, look, are you going to really tell me what's going on? Why don't you really tell me what's going on? Mm -hmm. And she's about to tell him what's really going on. And then Andrews walks in. Right. And I know that's an old trick. It's Mm -hmm. an old screenwriting trick. And what you know, or what you hope is if that happens, then the first thing that should happen when they're together again, and he's, and she's able to tell him, she'll tell him, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't. No. And that kind of sucks because then there's like another interruption later on where it looks like, and, and it's just, again, it's the, it's the cold dead hand of the storyteller. And there needs to be, in my opinion, a little more finesse, you know, when you're, especially with a horror film, with a, something that's this manipulative, the invisible hand is better, you know, yeah. but it's so, uh, I don't know. It's I so mean, obvious to me if i'm if i'm cutting this i cut that out andrews comes in before he has a chance to ask her the question period like there's no reason right now like i said i like that he respects her privacy thus far thus far he's like okay i'm gonna bide my time i don't feel that this is necessarily urgent so i'll let her keep her secret for now because i respect her we have mutual admiration that's better anyway it's much better than the cliched. Uh, tell right, me what's going on. Well, uh, what's going on in here? You know, yeah. But yeah. so, so again, we're back to then. Um, that's what's so weird is then, pretty much from this, Andrews authorizes the cremation, right? Yes. And we go to the cremation because of cholera. Because of cholera, and we go to the cremation, and again, you kind of feel like, well, couldn't. She should have. Shouldn't she have told him before the cremation? Didn't she have time to say? I guess, but it, it kind of doesn't matter if she tells him. Th- that's not important right now. That's why I think it could just be cut. Like I don't think that has to happen. I think right now they could have been like, okay, we just done the let her scene. have let her have the deception. Let everybody buy into it. Let's digress. Let's have a funeral. Then let's get to it. I mean, right. I think that Clemens would respect that because he couldn't possibly think that it's as dire as it is. I mean, if he had, is he thinking, oh, I sure hope this isn't some kind of alien that's going to kill us. You know, he's not thinking that. So right now he's probably thinking, okay, I'll take it easy. For some reason she doesn't want to say, and she seems like a legitimate character here that I, I have respect for. You know, I just think, yeah, the, the, this is all a little strange. It's hard to buy it. It's hard to buy the logic of this interaction. Yeah. Finch just wanted to cut up the little girl. He didn't want to do all this talking. Mm-hmm. And he had to shoot all this talking. Well, we don't. We do. We even want to get into why the autopsy is also superfluous in any way. <laughs> I mean, 
we see later a scanner that could see inside of a human body. There was absolutely no need to cut this girl up. That's so true. <sighs> I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It's really, really crazy. Yeah. Um, maybe Ripley just forgot. <laughs> once again, once again, Andrews is going to tell her, um, you know, that she needs, she shouldn't be around the men. And then, and then, but they can come to the funeral. Apparently so they all come. They're they all going to go to the funeral. funeral together. But after that, after that, you need to stay away <laughs> from all the men. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, sorry, folks. I'm, I shouldn't be laughing. It makes it sound, I'm not taking any pleasure in the flaws of this movie. And I guess I kind of am. So we get the. Really nice exterior shot of the two furnaces. Oh, I love these! Yeah, uh, and the and, music that goes. Over and then and I guess time. in the background, if you look closely, there's a the, the Blade Runner building is back there. There's an homage to um to the Tyrell Corporation, apparently. Some nice Whalen Utani uh, logos, logos on, the on there, so and some of that stuff company. was built out of cardboard, apparently. So it's a lot of smoke and haze and and lighting that obfuscates a lot of that stuff. Nice. And so, so we move toward really what is going to become the climax of this sequence and essentially the end of the first act of the movie. Yes. And the setup, you know, we should point out that this is setting up a major set piece uh, for later in the film. So it is important um, right. as, as a you know, kind of laying groundwork for later. Uh, so we're back to the strategy of this of intercutting, you know, of the of the hand of the director kind of coming in. Um Coppola saves this kind of intercutting for the very end of The Godfather when they do the baptism with the wiping out everybody, uh -huh. right? Uh, Fincher is using his uh, intercutting chip much earlier. So we, and speaking of Coppola, by the way, there are these He's, really interesting Coppola dissolves of faces. They're very apocalypse very now. Very apocalypse now, yeah. Both the um, beginning and the end of- Completely yeah. generic prayer, uh, completely generic whatever you want to call it that, um, that Dylan ultimately says. Yeah. Again, so this is where they're- I think that there was a real lack of verbal poetry. Like I would just as soon watch this and not have anybody say anything, you know, and just take the moment. But then we're doing this intercutting to the dog barking. Um, and of course, as Dylan starts talking about why, why does this horrible thing happen? Why do we live in this world of suffering? Why do people suffer? Blah, blah, blah. We, we watch the, the alien basically get birthed out of the kill, dog kill what is cinematically the most innocent creature a dog right which again i'm gonna cut up a girl and i'm gonna kill a dog <laughs> so it's like you know well you go young man i understand that you know if you don't do it who's going to because well, old people won't he did want to just kill an ox which we all agree you can kill ox all you want yeah, so I guess we should we can we can say a word or two about that ox business. And did you like the way that sequence? Which did you like better? Do you like the oh, dog? The ox. Really, I don't. Yeah, no, I like the ox better. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, I think the ox looks for, phony. I don't really. Yeah, hmm. doesn't it looks good? I mean, I'll give you that the dog looks great. I mean, the, everything that's going on with the dog is real legit. And I, it, I mean, is it an animatronic dog or is that dog somehow trained to writhe around like that? That's pretty interesting but um to me the uh, okay first of all as an as a visual image as a iconic image the ox is much more interesting as far as you know, if we're gonna have these uh, and, and it uh, harkens to the medieval thing right a little bit well yeah sure um, the ox yeah, that's left over it's um, again, it's, me, an it's, ox, a, it's an ox in the vincent ward script right so to me an ox is a far more interesting creature for something like that i think it looks fine i didn't get the i didn't get that it looked bad at all and um so let me know. ask you this the oxen scene where they're setting it up and to, to butcher it yeah. and so on yeah 
works way better than the dog scene where he finds his dog and goes, oh, are you sick? Who would do this? You know, I, I, me, I don't know. I disagree. Well, I mean, I think it at least sets up some things that happen later, whether I agree that the thing should happen later or not, that these men are randy and who knows what's going to so happen. Let me ask they're they're so kind of dangerous. So here's you know. my question that I don't quite understand. And maybe this is a problem of the dog. So the alien that comes out of the dog that's by, that's on four legs, and the four-legged alien idea comes from the Vincent Ward script, by the way. Okay. Four-legged creature comes out of the dog. We assume that it must take on some of the attributes of the host. Mm-hmm. Um and it's going to look like a dog through most of the movie, except in some instances where it seems like it's way bigger than the dog. Like the alien seems to change, for, for me, it changes shape through the film. Oh, so man. are we to assume that if it had come out of the ox, it would have been a bigger four-legged lumbering? I mean, would it be more of a lumbering alien? Would it move like an ox? Because the other one moves like a dog. Like the alien in this movie, I believe it came out of the dog because it moves like a dog and it's arguably not as scary because it's a little dog, but whatever. Let's remember that as they were going to shoot it with, or they did shoot it with the ox, when that was the primary idea, they wanted to use a dog in a suit for a few shots. So that idea was clearly, it was just a, it'll have some, it'll have four legs. That'll be all that I think. Well, that's fucking stupid if you ask me. All right. There you go. I'm on the record on that one, folks. If so it was going to come out of an ox, it needs to be more ox-like. It's going to, in their minds, it just needs to be for. There's nothing in the movie that literally states. Well, it comes that out it of has a, to be like the thing that it came out it of. Comes I mean, out we've of never a, seen that before. Comes so. out of a human, and it's on two legs. Two legs. That's it. It's not like a human in any other way. So. All, what you literally just said was but, all, it, all size, that the same attribute is is how many legs it stands. Is on. it the same size as a human? No, it's way bigger than a human. Okay, so, so I mean, look at it. What, how so high why, is it uh, above so, Brett? So why you know? isn't it really bigger? Like so, it's just you're putting too much into okay, this. Okay, so it's just that little <laughs> doggy guy. Okay, he's just a little. He's right. just a four-legged guy. That's he still has all the characteristics. Uh, characteristics are she, probably. Uh, especially if that queen embryo thing has anything to do with it, uh, has all the characteristics of a xenomorph, but takes on just little bits here and there. And okay. in this case, it was the four legs, and that's it. Okay, that's why they could inter- that's why they could intercut their or, or or mix and match. They go, oh, it's a dog, it's an ox, whatever. As long as it's four legged, and that's all you really have to put into it. I think. Okay. Well, I definitely think sometimes it's more menacing than other times because of well, how sometimes it appears to be bigger than it does in other places. And we'll get there. We'll, well, we'll get to that. Well, sometimes it looks like a vinyl sticker that somebody stuck to the ceiling, too. So it's really, <laughs> I mean, the menacing right, well, there's, consistency there's of menace is not really in play. Uh, so as we come to this um, climax and this juxtaposition and what seems to be the end of the first act, uh, I just want to say that this which exists in the Vincent Ward script, it exists in the Walter Hill script, exists in either both of the versions of this movie, both cuts. You turn the first act of this movie on something that has nothing to do with the character's choice. Yep. It is only the hand of the storyteller saying, okay, the setup is done, it's popped out of the dog, and um, we're on to the next chunk of the movie. And it's, I find it to be really unsatisfying. Yeah, because it's indicating, okay, we're watching, especially a movie like this, because, you know, we watch a Transformers movie or whatever, you know, cliche, blockbuster kind of thing. Um, Fine. I I don't even remember who the characters are in those movies. But Alien, 
and aliens was always the foundation was always the characters they just there's these things happening around them but we cared about the characters the people they were well fleshed out so we we gave a shit when you turn your beat your sequences and acts and whatever if everything the most important like the spots the landmarks in the movie you're turning on external events then you're not getting to the core of what it was we liked about these movies in the first place you're telling me that the fact that an alien burst out of a dog is more important than something ripley decides to do now we're getting an emotional moment with ripley here but it's not a decisive moment I mean, no, not at all. It's just it's a it's a it's a it's a moment of mourning. It's a retroactive yeah. moment. It's not anything forward moving at all. We want her, and specifically in this movie, her to turn the page for us. Like none of these, we don't give a shit about any of these guys yet. We're starting to care about Charles Dance a little bit, and in Alien, it was different. We cared about everybody kind of equally right off the bat, right? right? Yeah. Where in Aliens, we care about. She goes, "Fuck it, Bert. I'm coming. I'll come with you." end of act one that's a, a big decision a huge decision for this character that we really care about because we saw her go through hell in the first movie and we loved her for the first act of aliens and we felt for her and we knew exactly what she was going through and we were wondering you know we knew she was going to make the decision but you got to wonder like wow, how is she going to come to this decision how what is it going to take to get her to go back there that's important that's an important turn in the story this is not important Nope. Just the alien popping out is not important. Um, so that, I, mean, I suppose so you I suppose you could argue. Um, thinking back, we didn't do this kind of a breakdown with Alien because we did it one minute at a time. So we didn't talk so much about structure, um, real structure. I suppose the chestburster is the end of a sequence, though, isn't it? No, it's the middle of the movie. But it's the midpoint turn of the movie. It's a midpoint turn. No, no. I mean the the face What's, the face hugger bringing the it's the bringing the face hugger back uh and then yeah it's, it, it jumps on gets john hurt right and then they bring it back i mean the in. chestburster scene the the when that thing runs off no that's the middle of the movie right isn't it well it's a turning point of the movie though right but I'm just what's saying at the end of the a, first act what's the end of the first oh, the end act? of the first act is the yeah that's uh right it, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. no i'm not talking and about and i'm, I'm saying about again it's like a character is at stake something is is at stake mm -hmm. they've we've watched an alien you meet this whole crew and they're all working together to do something which is to land on this planet to go out and investigate this thing then one of the guys gets hurt they bring him back into the into the ship it's a real right. problem um and they take the fuck off and I get see. into space what we're talking about is the difference between a act break and a sequence break I, i'm just bringing that up i, I was thinking that there is still a big turn in the story there that happens on an event and not a character choice. Yes, that's true. But you're uh, just yeah, talking specifically yeah, about yeah, act breaks. Yeah, but I'm just talking about, yes. And, okay. And I would argue probably that if we looked at Alien and they looked at the ends of every sequences, yeah, there'd probably be a couple of events, mm -hmm. but most of the time it's it's yes. based on a choice that somebody makes. For sure. And that spins the story into the into the next into the next dynamic yep. no for sure i yeah. was just yeah. i just thought it would be fair I thought, I thought we were gonna have to break up john no i just thought it would be fair to bring up in the perfect movie alien right <laughs> maybe there was points that, while people are you know because we know we're being listened to right now by people who really like alien 3 so True. i want to make sure to True. be fair right. well so, so i mean that brings us to the end of the first act and that brings us to the to the end of the first episode of our um examination of this movie yeah. and uh we went a little over an hour so yeah maybe this thing's going to be like a four-hour show I, you know an hour yeah. per section i don't know 
Yep. Uh, could be. We'll just have to see. Um, can anybody find us anywhere? Are yeah, we still I mean, we're, around? We're still, the, still got the Alien Minute Facebook page. We still have an Alien Minute, uh, uh, at Alien Minute Pod on Twitter. Um, AlienMinute.com is gone, right? AlienMinute.com is gone, but that's fine. Well, you know, honestly, there's, we're, I, we've almost you, entered an age where websites are not, not yeah, important you can, anymore. Yeah, you can Google any of <laughs> these scripts. You can Google any of these scripts and probably find them at somebody else's website. Oh, well, so, I might I might just link them at the Facebook page or link right. them on Twitter. Yes, we can do that. We'll help you a little bit. We just won't have a uh, an archive like we used to have on the AlienMinute.com. It was a nice archive. It was okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you, everybody, for, uh, for, for patiently waiting for us to do this, for encouraging us to do this. I hope we haven't alienated anybody, and I did not mean that as a bad pun, um, with our critical uh, rumor control uh, examination in Alien 3, but uh, I'm looking forward to, to getting into Act 2. I am too. So we'll see you next time for that. Bye. Bye.